When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Tom Dobbe and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop. And hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest of our podcast this week is Tine Mangor Tornmark, co-founder and CEO of Openly. In 2018, I was sitting at a lunch table complaining and really just emphasizing like the difficulties of ensuring compliance across all these different nationalities and countries. And my co-founder today, at that point, he just said, but there has to be service out there, Steve. There has to be. And he started looking for one and we couldn't find any. And you know when the butterflies start to flap and like you get the tingling in your body? That's how I felt at that point. And that's why we found the people monster. This is Tina. She has 10 years of experience as a lawyer from Plessner Law Firm and Trustpilot. At Trustpilot, she built up Trustpilot's legal compliance teams and processes, from when the company had one office with 70 employees to 850 employees across the globe. She believes that privacy is a fundamental right every individual has and should have. She realized, however, the struggle she had at Trustpilot to comply around privacy. And Trustpilot is a large company with deep pockets and a large legal team. Imagine then how small and medium-sized business struggle. It's almost an impossible task. That's why she co-founded Openly in 2018, a legal tech startup that's on a mission to help companies become better data citizens. And that inspired me, and hence I invited Stina to my podcast. We explore what's broken in the world of proving compliance and privacy data as a business. We dig into the why this is the case and why it is so hard to solve. Stina then shares the approach that they have taken to solve the problem and the hurdles that she had to overcome in doing so. We discuss what it took to create momentum and end up with a customer base that's close to 100% referenceable and how that required them to think differently about what their product needed to be all about. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, where to strategically focus your investment when you're starting a SaaS business. Secondly, how you turn something that's perceived the cost of doing business into a competitive advantage for your customers. Thirdly, how to go about creating momentum when nobody's looking for your SaaS solution. And fourthly, 
how to keep your SaaS business on track when adversity hits, and more importantly, how to come out stronger. So hi, Stine. Welcome to my podcast. Nice to be here. It's a pleasure indeed. I looked in my notes and I saw that our conversation started on LinkedIn somewhere in May when I reached out because I was inspired with the mission that you run in the B2B software space and yeah, kind of adding a legal flavor to that. Mm-hmm. So that's why I reached out and here we are recording the interview. Before we start and talk about your company, a little bit about you. If you would have to describe yourself in two or three words, what words would you use? Well, do you know the people that always knew they were going to be like creating their own company? I'm not one of those. I came from the corporate world and always believed that is what I'm supposed to do. Fitting into this big wheel of an organization and of course, like making an impact, but that's kind of like where I always saw myself. But during my career, I found out that I am a person who loves to solve problems. I love to be in chaos and create order. And I love to be part of a company that is on a mission to helping others with problems that for some can be very chaotic or complex and difficult to find the solutions for. So I think as an entrepreneur, I'm really good at executing. I'm very good at getting the company and the people towards a common goal. Cool. Essential traits to have as a CEO of the company. And yeah, it's interesting how, how that goes. I mean, I also came from the corporate world and I've been there for a very long time. I could never think of myself as doing something else. And then I started my own company four years ago and I realized I should have done that way before. So, you know, it's never too late. And let's make the jump to what you're doing right now. You started as a co-founder of a company called Openly. Now, what was the problem? What was the big idea behind the company to start something new in this particular space? Yeah. So maybe taking a few steps back in history. Good. So my background is as an attorney. I worked for one of Denmark's biggest law firms for six years, and I had clients like Google and Netflix and HBO. So always very privacy and tech focused. And in 2012, I came across this Danish startup called Trustpilot, where I did a due diligence on the company on behalf of a big VC firm. And they asked afterwards if I wanted to be seconded for a few months. And I thought, that'll be great. But then I'm definitely heading back to the law firm, but found out that I love to be part of a startup. I love to be on a journey and I love to make a difference. And not knowing necessarily where the journey ends, but that you're on the road to something that has the opportunity to really make a difference. In 2018, GDPR came around. And with my background, that was my area of responsibility, of course. And look, we had customers in 80 different countries at that point. And I had a big legal team. And still, we were struggling. I always believe that privacy is a fundamental right every individual has and should have. And the only way to really give people that right is to help the companies because it's the companies who have the data, who have the ability to honor the rights that you have as an individual. But then imagine that you're a small, medium-sized business. We were struggling at Trustpilot and we had a lot of money and a lot of legal people dedicated. How will you ever manage? How will you ever figure out what to do and how to do it? It's almost impossible. So in 2018, I was sitting at a lunch table complaining and then really just emphasizing 
like the difficulties of ensuring compliance across all these different nationalities and countries. And my co-founder today, at that point, he just said, but there has to be service out there, Steve. There has to be. And he started looking for one and we couldn't find any. And you know when the butterflies start to flap and like you get the tingling in your body? That's how I felt at that point. And that's why we found the people monster. Yeah, then you stumble upon something and it's like, wait a minute, has nobody solved this? So that's your opportunity then. And if the right backgrounds, then it's just go, go, go. Yeah, fascinating. That was also my reaction initially. It's like, okay, how many companies are actually doing this? And possibly there are more right now, but it also sort of came up and then it creates a whole new market that was never possible before or never imagined. Same as, of course, what happened over the last 20 months with COVID. It's creating opportunities for innovation that we... Couldn't even imagine 20 months ago. So that's how it works. You know, there's dynamics. And then you look around and be open for that. You pick them up. So, okay, then you started a company there. Tell me a little bit about the journey then. But, well, first a little bit, kind of wind it back. So this whole problem of GDPR, and I, of course, I've I've followed it myself. And I had a couple of people reaching out to me about my newsletter and whether it was all compliant and so on. Of course, you get the creeps out of that. Yeah, what is the result of doing nothing? And what happens if everybody starts to adopt those type of solutions? What value can be created? Is it more than just compliancy? Is it? If you take a step again back, the world today, in my opinion, is built on three fundamental different religions when it comes to data. Take the Chinese. The Chinese have a religion, as you might call it, that is based on the government owning the data. They have the right to it and they control it. Then you have the Americans. They have built a religion around data is owned by the companies. Not by the people, not by the government, but by the companies and they control it. Silicon Valley is the perfect example of that, right? And then you have Europe. Europe is based on the principle of the data belongs to the individual. And that is what GDPR supports. I completely understand that a lot of companies are sitting out there and thinking, this is a piece of legislation that is so difficult and so confusing and so complex that I have no way of ever becoming compliant or I don't know what to do. And I totally get that. And that is why I think what is so important is that you have solutions that build upon the foundation that it should be doable for companies to become compliant. It needs to be easy. And what often happens is that you create these complex monsters of software that the average business owner aren't able to use because you need a legal degree to even understand how to set it up. And that's why there is such a massive opportunity, but also an importance in getting that software in the right frame and state of mind. Otherwise, nobody will ever become compliant without then having to use massive amount of resources. Yeah, and invest massive amounts in legal advice and all those types of things, which is, of course, always changing and always ongoing. I understand that part. So now that your point was you want to be part of a journey, you want to make a difference, you love to solve big problems, be in chaos, create order out of that. Now I can imagine if everybody was looking at that big monster of GDPR, how do you start? You know, and tell me a little bit about the journey. So the way that I see you starting 
is where it makes the biggest impact. That is where you are either processing consumer data or it's where it's publicly available, publicly visible. It is telling the world what you do with data. It's telling the world that they actually have a choice of saying yes or no. And that if they say yes, that, that they can withdraw that consent. And therefore, for me, it's about starting where the impact is the biggest. It's not to say that you shouldn't have all your internal resources and documents in place. You should, but you start with where it matters. And at that point in time, what's also super interesting and difficult is for companies to figure out what data do we even have. Yeah, 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 true. A small interruption here. Stina just made an excellent remark about what sets her company apart from the rest. Instead of starting with the obvious, she focused her investment to start where the impact could be the biggest. And that means doing the hard part first, instead of the low-hanging fruits that everybody is after. This creates defensible differentiation and helps her to stand out in a way that's meaningful to the customer. And this is a trait remarkable software companies master. They focus on the essence and create new value possibilities. And they aim to be different, not just better. And this helps them to create momentum from day one. And you can master these traits as well. And I've got various options for you to start. First of all, just go to valueinspiration.com to learn about the masterminds, but also the work streams to put the fundamental building blocks in place to fast track the growth of your SaaS business. And as you're there anyway, don't forget to grab a free Kindle version of my book, The Remarkable Effect, to start sparking new inspirations in the next 30 minutes. Back to the interview. What systems do I use? Well, they might need to know some of the systems, but getting that overview, getting that understanding for many is almost impossible. Look at big companies that you've been a part of in the past. They are in so many locations. They have so many people. They have so many departments. And they're all buying systems and using systems and dropping them again as fast as they implemented them. And they all contain data. And it's all scattered around the world. So how do you protect that information? And also, how do you safeguard it in the sense that you protect the individual? But more importantly is also, how do you get value out of all those efforts that you're putting into becoming compliant. What is really important in that regard is actually then to leverage what we're seeing as the big next competitive advantage, that is compliance and ethics. If you look at how things have developed over time, in the beginning of the 2000s, everybody was doing TV commercial ads. And that's how you got your customers. Then you got the price comparison sites where everybody was competing on price. And that was the big competitive advantage that you would then have. Then came the whole customer service wave. Everybody was competing on having this amazing customer service. And that's where Trustpilot fitted in. And now what you're seeing is that ethics and compliance is the next big thing that company are starting slowly now to actually compete in. And I think you look at Facebook and Game Analytica and that whole wave also started a counter wave of actually then using all the efforts you have in your branding. When you're actually caring, when you're actually doing something, why not tell the world about it? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, too often we forget about that. I like the point that you take it beyond, okay, you have to be compliant, you have to be compliant, and 
typically is like the creating the fear there, but turning it into a competitive advantage where you actually uh, can do something in a positive way as well to your brand and, and how it's perceived in the market. And yeah. I can tell you that B2B companies, especially if you're based in Europe, is actually now becoming one of the biggest things that you can leverage. And if you're looking at sales cycles today, all companies need to make sure that the companies that they're buying from are compliant with GDPR, that they have their security in order. Now you have ESG coming as well. And therefore, a part of the vetting process when you're like starting to engage with a vendor is that you can prove that you're compliant. Many of the U.S. businesses based out of Silicon Valley have issues with that because you're sending data to the U.S. and then it's again all scattered. Where if you're based out of Europe, that can actually be used as shortening your sales cycle, showing that you have your GDPR in order. And we can see from our customers that they have actually shortened their sales cycle dramatically and that they're now able to compete against these Silicon Valley companies that previously were superior in some ways because of the technology. But now, due to the ethical and compliance element to it, well, that's actually now an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, right, I recall that from my time at Unit 4, when everything, of course, moved towards the cloud and you got this whole phenomena around data residency. Mm-hmm. And in Norway, it had to be in Norway. And in Sweden, it had to be in Sweden. And it's... Exactly. <laughs> and the moment you were, you, know, you were betting on larger platforms that didn't have a subsidiary or a data center in one of those countries, there it stops. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a real thing. It actually is a deal breaker rather than, <laughs> than one that accelerates it. So, yeah, I mean, to me, it looks like a pretty complex area. And you said it's how you approached it. What has been the difficult, well, the hardest nut to crack in this process? Firstly, it is making this complex area of law simple for users to understand in software. I know, like, it sounds a little maybe non-interesting, but the thing is, the easiest thing to do if you have a complex area of law is to describe it complex in a complex way. So now imagine you have to build software that needs to be used by non-legal people. Exactly. How do you get that software in a state where it's still compliant, it follows all the rules, and it gives that reassurance, but it's actually understandable to the user? That took some time. Like for us, UX and UX design is super important. It's at core of what we do. So that took a bit of time to develop. And then there is also the go-to-market strategy in the sense that people aren't searching for solutions or weren't at that point when we started because they didn't know that any existed. Yeah. I mean, that is such a common story of my podcast because everybody's doing things that hasn't been done yet. There's no map. And as a consequence, (laughs) there's also no demand for it, specifically to the category, of course, that you are creating almost, Mm. because there was no category. Exactly. So what has been an early decision that appeared to be really important to the success that you have right now? One of the important decisions were when we decided to create a freemium product, because what we discovered is by giving away a freemium product, we got people to join a journey. Yeah, I see that on your website, the cookie exactly. journey, the cookie essentials. And, yeah. yeah, and a lot of companies know that they need this annoying pop-up. Yeah. And what we found out is that by tapping into that and then taking them on that journey made a huge difference. Sure. 
And then we slowly educate them and tell them how they can solve the issues in a way that isn't encumbersome and it isn't difficult and it isn't super expensive. For us, that was a game changer. Yeah, foot in the door, yeah. get people to get used to it. Feel comfortable, feel safe. Because what yeah. we're selling is compliance and the safety yeah. net. So you need to trust the people you're buying from. And we really discovered that, that was a good way of doing it. Yes, yeah, product-led growth these days is a big one. Yeah, it's one that specifically, I think, in this area is a very important one because it starts with kicking tires and seeing things and getting used to things. Yeah, and like you say, building the trust and keeping it super simple. What have you, uh, what has been the most sort of the thing that stuck with you? I mean, coming from being an attorney, then getting involved in the startup world through that due diligence that you did, and then yeah, starting your own software business. What has been something that stuck with you and that's been important on your own yeah, learning curve? I think one of the things is if we take, like, there's been different jumps in my career and in my own development. And when you come from a law firm, everything needs to be perfect. That's how you're taught, right? Yeah. It is reading over and over again, the same email you've written like a trillion times because like, you have to make sure that there is no punctuation that is unleft or whatever it might be. And I found out that... Must be horror right now. <laughs> I found out that when you're a part of a startup and a journey, perfection isn't possible. You can do something that is fantastic, but it's not perfect. And it shouldn't be. Because if it's perfect, you spend too much time on creating something you think is perfect. But it might not necessarily meet the expectations of the customer. Yeah. So for us, it's a lot about getting a product out there and then tapping into the needs of the customer and then developing as you go along. Yeah, that's right. So and these are the basics, right? But it doesn't have to be perfect, perfect. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah. And that's a very interesting one. And I can imagine that if you come from that world and you've always been taught and drilled that before it goes out, it needs to have 16 approvals. Exactly. <laughs> That would kill a startup instantly. Yeah. Like at the law firm, we had a book on 300 pages about how you should be drafting emails or documents. Like how should you start an email? Was it with a big capital letter? Did you have a comma at the end? And there were so many rules just by like standard emails and how you should write them. And then imagine coming to a startup. There are no rules. There are no procedures. It's about there's creating. No map, there's, no, there's no manual. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I wrote my book and that was published last year, just before COVID, The Remarkable Effects. And it's about the 10 traits that define a remarkable software business. I'm always interested to understand like the, the latest insights of my guests in terms of what it takes to create a software business that people keep talking about. So what would you bring up? I think there, there's been a slight change recently where people have been very focused on, like when you're building software, it's all about scalability. And I completely agree. Of course it is. But people want to interact with humans. And I think COVID especially has made that visible. And therefore, there is now a slight change in that software needs to be humanized. So that's what we're really also trying to tap into. Yeah, I like that you bring that up because it's so true. We often take the technical view and we take a distance. At the end, it's all about people that we have to deal with and they have to make a difference for them, have to help them make a difference. Exactly. 
Yeah. This is so that have you got an example of how you have incorporated that humanification of the software? Yeah. So one of the ways is that, and I know this is something a lot of companies are doing, but when you come into your dashboard, just as an example, there is a picture of the person that is your success manager. This yeah. is just, again, so you feel that there is a human. And that is that human that is supporting your company. Okay. That is that human that you then see in the videos when you're doing like your onboarding. And that is that human that is there for you if you yeah. need the person. It's just these small things. Yeah, true. Somebody's on the other end having your back. Yeah. yeah. Part of your team. I actually wrote a blog about it today about what is the thing that actually creates trust in conversations and also in sales conversations in particular. And it's actually that when you're on the same side, if they feel that you're part of them. And you understand yeah. them. You understand their exactly. business. Exactly. And most importantly, that you actually care. Well said. Well said. So, I mean, there's not a lot of room for, you know, 2019 started. When did you go to market exactly? So we founded the company in 2018. but the first half year was more just figuring out what was it that we're going to be solving? How are we going to do it? As you normally like mess around a little when you do a startup and you test a little and you test things out. But really, we went to market in end of May last year. And then like traction from there really took off. That was an interesting period. You know, it was two months into COVID, not being able to travel, not being able to speak to people. What did you learn from that exercise? Well, when you're delivering a digital compliance software, you kind of fit into the realm of people working remote and everything yeah. going online. That's true. Yeah. So for us, that was a nice timing. On top of that, what we discovered is that money was for some companies tight, or at least they were holding off just to see what was the impact. Yeah, true. But they were still very interested in solving compliance and becoming better data citizens because data is and was becoming more and more important. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And at the same time, you had this big push, if you are any familiar with like all the cookie chaos that has been going on. And therefore, people are struggling. What can we do? What can't we do? What should we be doing? What type of data we're allowed to get? And then all of a sudden, you had what's called the SRIMS 2 verdict, which kind of invalidated what is called the privacy shield, where you're able to send data to U.S. companies on the basis of the privacy shield. And then it was like, can't we send any data to U.S. companies anymore? We use Slack or we use Google and what can we do? And things were just completely chaotic. True. And I understand if you were sitting as a company and thinking, what's going on here? And for us, what we found out is that education is super important, but education that meets the need of the users are even more important. So what issues are they struggling with at this exact point in time? Yeah. And how do you then provide that information in a way where it actually resonates? Love that. That's chapter 10 in my book. But it goes back to creating that trust, caring, having the empathy, understanding what they're going through, being on their side, helping them out in a way that they understand and keeping it simple. Yeah. 
I'm currently writing my second book about resilience, typically like what helps to not only bounce back from adversity that we've seen, but also actually get stronger from it. And with some companies, of course, the whole thing helped. Another portion is like it didn't help at all. And actually everything fell flat on its face. Have you become stronger from this exercise? That may be the wrong question because you didn't exist that long. But has anything changed in your beliefs that you now say that has been a gift? I think what I've been experienced is, this is more maybe on a personal level. So we were three people founding the company in the day. And one of my co-founders came down with stress in this period. And I think one thing is maybe the company weren't as heavily impacted because we were so new at the same time. But the fact that you were at home, you weren't interacting with anybody. And that had a big impact, but also very stressful for a lot of people. And when our co-founder came down with stress, it of course also had a big impact on us, like me and my other co-founder. What now? How should we react? Does it make a difference? And I think what I really learned from it is that there's always a solution. I know it sounds totally corny, but there's always a solution. But what's really important is just pausing for a few seconds, taking a deep breath. And I'm very like about executing and just full speed ahead, but stop for a second and just take a deep breath. Look your partner, co-founder in the eyes and say, where are you? How are you? Yeah, yeah true. And then from there on, then say, okay, so we're in it together, the two of us. Yeah. And therefrom, make a game plan. And then how yeah. should you then react? And what we saw is that we actually came out of it even stronger, not only as a co-founding team, but also in terms of management of the business, but also now together, there's such a big trust element. There you go again. It's a fantastic word. Yeah. It's the vibe and the trust, the belief in each other that you can do it together. Because at the end, you have to do it together. It's a team. Yeah. So what have you been most proud of achieving so far? I mean, if, for example, if you look at customers, what are anecdotes that you, you could almost like put on a plate on the wall? <laughs> We've gotten so many amazing customer statements. Yeah. We are a VC funded company and we were going through a fundraise process. And one of the VCs wanted to do a customer interview, of course. And normally you then, I think as a company, you would select a few where you know they're probably going to be happy. And I remember I just said to him, so who do you want to speak to? And he was kind of like, you don't want to select any? Well, who do you want to speak to? Yeah, I'll be happy to make an introduction. And afterwards, he said, I've never came across anybody so confident. And I said, well... Honestly, I think 98% of our customers are happy. Yeah, that's the way it works at the end, right? If that's what you strive for, the rest will come. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I've already heard a couple of pointers in terms of how you designed the software, how you created human element in there. It's really all about them rather than you. Yeah. Great. Fantastic. Let me see. From all the lessons that you learned in the meantime, going from being an attorney to to being a tech entrepreneur on a mission, Mm -hmm. as I call it, what is a lesson learned or tidbits of wisdom that you gained? What would be a do and possibly a don't for that you would give to people that aspire to be a tech founder themselves? One thing is for me as an individual, I would never found a company on my own. Okay. 
I would always do it together with another or individual. And I think it's because there are good times, but there are also a lot of hard times. Yeah, and it's true. so important that you're not alone. Like, I think there's a lot to say about mental health. And I think there's a lot of good conversations going on at the moment. And for founders, it can be extremely stressful. So yeah. having somebody who you can lean on when it gets tough, but also who you can celebrate with when it goes well is critical. So for me, that's a completely like do and something that I really am grateful for. It is. I like that aspect that you highlighted. Yeah. What's yeah. a don't? A don't is believing that when you have an amazing product, it'll sell itself. Exactly. That's the mistake so many people make. Yeah. 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 Sales it doesn't. shouldn't be underestimated. No. You need to just strongly dead focused without any deviation of any kind. You should just focus on sales. Yeah. I know you can't sell a product that hasn't been built, but as soon as you have something, that should be your sole focus of the business. Yeah. That's how you prove traction. That's how you validate your product. And yeah. that is how you improve your product. That's true. True. Is there anything in that whole process that has worked better for you than something else? I think in the beginning, everything is, of course, founder-led, right? And we fairly fast found out that one of the co-founders were better at selling than the other. Yeah. And then adapt. Don't wait too long. That's true. But it's also acknowledging the fact that sales is actually a super complex thing to do. Yeah. And you need good salespeople. What makes a very good salesperson? I mean, what is one characteristic that you would say, look for that? So I actually think social skills are a must-have and should never be underestimated. True. Because sales is, again, about trust. It's about acknowledging the other person at the other end and it's understanding them and understanding their needs. And you need a strong social skill set in order for you to be able to do that. Exactly. That's completely true. So what is next for you? I mean, where do you plan to take openly in the next six to 12 months? So we have a lot of things on our plates at the moment. We're getting a, got a lot of traction, really building out the product, as you always do when you're a startup. But what we're seeing is that we've built a platform where we're really helping our customers with GDPR and building that software that takes them on that journey, which is amazing. What we want to do is actually enable and showcase our customers' efforts even more. So it is taking all the software we already have internally and making it more public so the world can see all the things, the good things our customers are doing to ensure compliance and thereby also helping and enabling them to close sales even more. Nice. Interesting evolution. I love that. Yep. So where can people find out more? To first find out more about Legal Monster and to connect with you to say hi. Well, legalmonster.com is a good place to start. Always open to receiving emails and helping out. That's very much, again, back to our DNA. So they're always welcome to connect either on LinkedIn 
where you can find my name, maybe not easily spelled for many people because it's very Danish, I know, but always connect on LinkedIn, open for that. And otherwise send us an email at hello at legalmaster.com. And I will always make sure to answer any questions people may have or one from our team. Perfect. As simple as it can be. I'm sure that's particularly around that evolution that you were talking about at the end. That's oh yeah, opening up a lot. And it goes back to your point in the beginning. It's not only about you know compliance, compliance, but actually creating competitive advantage with that. Music to my ears. So thanks for being so open and sharing your secrets, your lessons, and very good luck with the next stage of the company. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And this ends my conversation with Tina. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on the mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Stine Mangor Tornmark, co-founder and CEO of Openly. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.